0: Hi, Pastor Rob here from City East Church and NTL Ministries. This sermon series is called Uncovering Religion. We live in a day where the world is saturated with contradictory faiths and beliefs. Can they all be right? Are they all wrong? As Christians, it is imperative that we understand something of what these religions teach and believe so that we can accurately discern right from wrong. Galatians 1 verses 8 to 9 and it says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. So what, what that's saying is, even if an angel should come to you And preach to you a gospel other than what we are preaching, which is what Paul was preaching, what the disciples of Christ were preaching. Let him be eternally condemned. Even that angel will be eternally condemned. So if someone claims a new faith other than the faith that Christ claimed, let them be eternally condemned. That's what Paul's saying. That's pretty hard. But what it's doing is it's basically protecting Christians from false religions. And he's saying it with pretty hard words. Don't even think about it, angels. Because you know, if you mention, even if you appear to someone and tell them a gospel other than what Jesus proclaimed, you're going to be condemned for doing that. And I've just announced that Paul as an apostle could announce that. And uh, it also gives us confidence to know. There is only one true gospel. But in an effort to convince you of that, and I, I don't have to do that much convincing in, in this church, but there are a lot of people that need a lot of convincing. I've written this sermon, and we, over a period of time, we're going to go through quite a few different religions. Okay, I first I want to recognize the assistance of the books, The Popular Encyclope, Encyclopedia of Apologetics by Ed Heinson and Ergen Kainer, as well as this book here, The uh, Facts on World Religion. So this is a fantastic book. An apologetic book, it goes into and uncovers a lot of the religions of the world and um, New Age cults and what have you. And this one also, just a nice little skinny one, easy to read, but really powerful little book. And there's also another book which I didn't refer to for this sermon, which is A Pocket Guide to Sex and New Religions uh, by Nigel Scotland. Um, These are fantastic books. So I wanted to do this series of sermons on uncovering religions simply because we live in a day where the world is saturated with contradictory faiths and beliefs. Saturated. Absolutely, like every single person you stop and talk to has a different view of life. The problem we have as Christians is the thought of, do we have it right? Are we believing the right thing or are we deceived also? Because we can't all believe correctly. We can't, can't all be right, can we? Someone's got to be wrong. When there's that many ways of looking at life, someone has to have it wrong. And not just one, but if only one has it right, a lot have it wrong. And so what our quest in life should be is to make sure we have it right. Are we right in holding to our faith when there are so many conflicting religions, religious views in the world? How can we be so prideful to think we have it right and the other faiths and beliefs of this world have it wrong? How can we be that prideful to think that unless we were sure? And so in an effort, we must study what other faiths are believing and then we can get a sense of that, of whether we're on the right path or not. In in considering these questions, I've been prompted to do a study upon the major religions and faiths in this world. Um, Today I tend to help you uh, through the religion of Islam. Later I will be doing the religions of Hinduism, Buddhism, Baha'i, Sikhism, Confucianism, Humanism, Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, Christadelphians, Hedonism, Mysticism, Mythology, the Occult, Paganism, Freemasonry, the New Age, Christian science, Scientology, the Jesus seminars, Judaism, Catholicism, Theosophy and there are many many others. That's only just a few. Seriously, that is just a handful. <laughs> in studying these religions it will help us in many ways. It, firstly, it will be able we will be able to accurately discern truth from lies. That's the first thing. When you've heard a dozen or so of these types of sermons, you're going to be able to discern truth from lies quite, quite clearly. Uh, you'll also get a deeper appreciation for the solidness and the soundness of our faith in the living Christ in comparison to the flimsiness and the harshness of these other religions and belief systems. They're either flimsy or harsh or both. Uh, it will also help us in witnessing to people who are in bondage to these beliefs as well. The religion of Islam is explicitly linked to its founder, a Saudi tradesman named Muhammad. Everyone knows of Muhammad? We know of him, but we don't know him. So Muhammad was born in AD 570 in Saudi Arabia. He had a tragic upbringing. His father, Abdullah, died before he was born. His mother, Amina, died when he was only six years old. His grandfather, who took him on, as his child, Abd al-Mutalab, looked after him for the next two years, and then he died. So he was orphaned by the age of 10, and then his uncle, Abu Talib, took custody of him. So his uncle was a tradesman, and Muhammad worked alongside his uncle. Muhammad became a successful trader and led caravan trips to neighbouring regions, purchasing and selling goods to be sold in Mecca. So that was his job. He was a tradesman. He went to and from uh, these various neighbouring towns and, and countries and would bring the goods back to Mecca. He was considered a skilled entrepreneur of some means, Muhammad was. In AD 595, at the age of 25, on a trip to Syria, Muhammad met a wealthy widow named Khadijah. she was 15 years older than him, yet the relationship blossomed and they married. Uh, they produced six children, two sons who died in infancy, and four daughters, two of whom married future caliphs. I think is how you pronounce that, caliphs. Uh, they are Islamic leaders. So Khadija was Muhammad's first convert, and she was his greatest advocate as well, someone who spoke on his behalf. At that time, it was unique to have only one wife, yet for some time, Muhammad was devoted to only her. So they found that strange straight away. It was a little bit different because he's devoted to one woman. Uh, But it wasn't long before he married and or took 11 other women to be his wives and concubines. Good old days. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that. (laughs) Eleven women nagging you at once? would be just... No wonder men didn't live past 40 in those days. (laughs) His last bride rose to prominence in Islam's nascent, which means coming into existence. So um, his last bride, even though she was six years old when she married Muhammad... She was six years old, she got married, and Muhammad was 50 at the time. Now, I don't know whether that was a custom in those days, but it sounds, as we compare it to today, it's a little weird, but so is marrying oh, 11 yeah. women. On Muhammad's 40th birthday in AD 610, Muhammad received a vision supposedly from the angel Gabriel. Now, this is that scripture. If Even if an angel would come and tell you a conflicting uh, gospel to the one that that the disciples originally proclaimed, then let them be eternally condemned. Now, what did this angel say? Um, He believed the angel visited him and brought him a solemn message as recorded in Surah 96 verses 1 to 5. Muhammad was told that the world had abandoned true worship and that he was chosen by God as a prophet to bring the final message to the world. So this was the essence of the message, that all religions on earth are corrupt. He was to proclaim the worship of the true God named Allah and he was to receive the true words of Allah, record them and bring people back to the straight path. Eventually, the day of this visitation would be marked by Ramadan, the most sacred month in Islam. In these early years, Muhammad had relatively few converts other than his wife and a wealthy businessman named Abu Bakr. The movement was further stalled by the fact that Muhammad was illiterate and could not record the messages he was receiving. made it a little bit difficult for him. So he obviously used others to write for him. In the Hadith, which is the multi-volume set of the life and teachings of Muhammad, it states that Muhammad would go into a trance, often rolling on the ground and roaring as if in seizure. A lot of people back then thought he was possessed. But his wife convinced him he wasn't. He said, these are true messages. Alistair Crowley, when he received messages in a similar thing, um, he was receiving messages. They were definitely demonic. But his wife told him that this is the new age that you are bringing forth. And, and just the fact that the seizures and the roaring and rolling, like that is demonic possession. But no, they, of course, a, a Muslim would never believe that. This added to the suspicion with which he was held by the mocking unbeliefs in Mecca. So the people of that time weren't in agreement with him. Toward the end of the first Meccan period, he claimed to be taken on a night journey into heaven. He claimed that he had been introduced to all the prophets of Islam, including Moses and Jesus. It was on this journey that he received the details for the ritualistic daily prayer and the core message of the Islamic faith. Now, this is how the, how Islam spread in those days. While Muhammad lived in Mecca in AD 619 to 622, he began to teach a proprietary, which means owner. If you're a proprietor of a business, you're the owner. A proprietary message of heritage to those who listened uh, in Medina. So Saudi Arabia was filled with idol worshippers at that time. He told them that they must be brought back to one true faith. He claimed that this message was the original message given to Moses and Abraham and that even Jesus was one of the prophets of the same message. He told them that the Muslims were sons of Ishmael, the older son of Abraham. Now, what he then announced is where he is a single illiterate prophet. He sent the Muslim world into error and then into absolute fierce rage against all the Jews and Christians. The next thing he announces is this. He claimed that Ishmael was offered as a sacrifice by Abraham, not Isaac. So what he claimed from that point on, that the Bible states that Isaac was offered as a as a sacrifice and the angel called out before he was about to sacrifice him Because and Abraham was considered faithful to God because he was going to even sacrifice his own son, because God asked him to. But he claimed that wasn't Isaac. That was Ishmael because Ishmael was the oldest. So, he claimed that Ishmael was offered as a sacrifice by Abraham, not Isaac. Therefore, the holy land of the Jews and the Christians was actually the rightful land and of inheritance for the Muslims. So, he straight away he just reshaped what they've come to believe, said that's not true, this is the truth now. So now, where the Jews are, That's our land. And the Christians and the Jews who believe that it's their land, let's get rid of them. So the compelling nature of this message cannot be underestimated in history by claiming that much of the disputed lands of the Middle East were in fact the birthright of Muslims. Muhammad united countless Arabic tribes that had spent many years at war and gave them all a common enemy. The Jews, the Christians, even the Zoroastrians or anyone else who were squatters in the rightful land. So they now had a common enemy. They didn't have to fight each other. Let's just use them as the enemy. It's similar to, you know, if you want to stop a worldwide war, just say, hey, we've got a common enemy and some aliens and we all unite together to fight the aliens. Now Jews and Christians are aliens, not supposed to be in that land. If you... Yet people believing that, there's a lot of rage that can be and a lot of anger that can be uh, generated. By AD 628, he was clearly the most powerful man in the entire Middle East. Clearly. Now, what is the message of Islam? Islam does not mean peace in the classic sense of the term. It means surrender. Now, this term carries a significant double meaning. The first meaning uh, to the Muslim surrender means the evidence of his position in the religion, so that he is willingly surrendered to the rites, the rituals, and the practices of the religion. So for the Muslim, it's okay because if you're a Muslim and you surrender to the, you've, you've surrendered your life to the religion. Now you surrender yourself to Allah. And the five pillars of Islam summarize this system at conversion. The creed, the kalima, must be recited by the convert. Uh, which is there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his final prophet. Also, the prayers, the salat, must be offered five times a day while facing Mecca. Alms, called the zakat, equivalent to one-fortieth of one's income must be given to the cause. They should have regular fasting, called saun, and it must take place especially during the month of Ramadan. And they also must make a pilgrimage to Mecca that's called the Hajj. must be made once during the lifetime of a Muslim. So these are the five conditions or the five pillars of Islam. Uh, this surrender causes uh, comprises the first meaning of the word jihad, uh, implying an inner struggle. So all Muslims are in jihad. They're having an inner struggle. They're struggling with prayer. They're struggling with uh, um, their alms that they have to give. They're struggling with their fasting and so on. And a lot of them will probably struggle with the uh, pilgrimage yeah. to Mecca, especially if they're not financially able. Now, jihad, the word jihad may be interpreted as internal, as a spiritual struggle, but it's also external in defending Islam. So that's, there's a double meaning in the word jihad. It's inner, but it's also external where you defend the cause. So the second meaning of the term surrender, which is the term Islam, the second meaning is this. It carries a profoundly different meaning when applied to the unbeliever. Central to Muhammad's message was the subjugation of the kafir, which kafir is the unbelievers under the Islamic law. So subjugation means to bring under domination or control by conquest. That's what subjugation means. It's, it's dictatorial. It's you bow or else. And if you don't bow to us, you're going to suffer some incredible consequences. Muhammad established Islam as a complete and total world system. This system dictates one's beliefs, his diet, dress, his work, his home, his politics and his allegiances. Islam is totally theocratic, a system of government in which priests rule in the name of God. Theocratic is where priests rule, not democratic. Islam and democracy are mutually contradictory. We live in a democracy, as you all understand. So the reason why Muslims do not blend very well into democratic societies, and on the, to the most part they despise our system, um, and they have also declared their intention to destroy democracy from this planet. The reason why is because they, you can't put a theocratic people in a de- democratic society. They just don't blend. It's like putting oil with water. That's why you find Muslims huddle together. They build a mosque because they live in a democracy which allows you to build your mosque. Mm. But then they hate the very country that gave them the rights to be- have their own religion and faith. And they want to bring that country down. Um, and even you'll find most Muslims, even if they're peace loving and, you know, uh, potentially, you know, they, they seem fine with uh, you, you know, as a person and stuff. They live a sort of in a way that you think, oh, they sort of live like us. You'll find they will never, ever recant of anything that the th- fanatical Muslims do. They'll never say that what they did was wrong. Because according to their, in their churches, they're taught that these fanatics that are doing the extreme, you know, suicide missions and stuff are doing the right thing and they believe it's right. They won't say it to your face, but if you press them, they won't reject the fact that they're actually um, doing the wrong thing. In Islamic lands, the Kafir, which is the unbelievers, is forced to surrender to Islam in every way. So, if you read the um, the handout, it, it talks about the effect of Islam in countries around the world as they reach certain population levels. As the population levels of of the um, Muslims increase in a country, different things start to occur in those countries as they get more and more power. And if you read through it, as they get to total power, it's absolutely, you know, horrific the consequences that those countries suffer at the hands of the um, Islamic faith in the pact of umar found in the hadith unbelievers in muslim lands were uh, to become second-class inhabitants and pay a special tax called the jizyat so if you if you're not a if you you if you don't belong to islam you're gonna have to pay a special tax just to be there they were not allowed to marry muslim women and must allow their daughters to marry muslim men So they're forced for their daughters. So if I was over there with my daughter, we would have to let our daughters marry Muslim men. They wouldn't be allowed to marry anyone else. Uh, They could not hold public office and Christian churches existing in Muslim lands could never expand their land and buildings and they were prohibited in converting Muslims. Actually, this is a pretty liberal sort of view of it. Actually, Christian churches are not tolerated in most Muslim lands and are burned to the ground and many Christians are savagely beaten and killed. And I receive reports of it all the time through Voice of the Martyrs of the atrocities that are occurring to Christians in in these countries. Christians in these lands must allow their families to be converted to Islam. And they are forced to allow... So if you're a minister with a family, you you will be forced to uh, let the Muslims convert your family. So it's just about at a point that Christians can't go in. Because it's just, they're not going to last long. The sex of Islam. Um, When Muhammad died in AD 632, Islam had no plans for future leadership. This caused a split in the followers of Muhammad as he was their last prophet. The followers had to appoint caliphs as successors to Muhammad. Now, Muhammad had no sons, so one group of followers chose Ali, his son-in-law, as their caliph, and they became known as the Shiite school. Eleven wives, eleven women, no kids. Yeah, it's a pretty like long odds. A... <laughs> well, he had four girls to his first wife, but no children to his other no, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, he had four daughters, but yeah. he had six children altogether. Oh, okay. But yeah. two died. Yeah. But the yeah, two yeah. sons died. Yeah. So, so no. Anyway. But he had. Yeah, that's 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 an Start interesting point. Again. Alright, so Muhammad had no sons, so one group of followers chose Ali, Muhammad, Ali, Uh, his son-in-law as their caliph, and they became known as the Shiite school. So 10% of Muslims are Shiites. Shiites. Most, however, chose Abu Bakr as the first male convert to Islam. And they became known as the Sunni school, which means people of the way. And they say 90% of Muslims are Sunni Muslims. That's probably a rough, you know, statistic. Other Islamic groups have developed over time, usually through mingling with other world religions. For example, Sufi Muslims incorporate into their belief Hindu concepts of becoming one with the mind of Allah. And it's funny because you get Christian groups coming one with the mind of Christ. Mm. You know, they're they're new age. So the Muslims have new age types of believers as well. Alawite Muslims, who are strongest in Syria, celebrate Christmas, for example. So they sort of allow a bit of Christianity in there. So Islam can best be described as a medieval Mormonism. Um, By that we mean that both Joseph Smith, who was the founder of Mormons, and Muhammad assumed the classic stance of a cult. they were going to correct and replace Christianity. that was their objective. In that vein both men took the characters of the Bible, omitted what they did not like, and replaced the rest. So both Mormons and Muslims declare that Jesus was a prophet but not God. that's they're very similar. Uh, they deny the atonement of Jesus Christ, and salvation by grace in his name. So they deny what we've been talking about, um, as in we are saved by grace, not by anything that we can do. And the problem is with Muslims is they have to keep proving themselves to Allah to receive salvation. And so a Muslim will go through his life knowing that if he doesn't get accepted at judgment uh, by Allah, he's going to go to hell. They believe in hell. But they have to work their way into heaven but they never get a bearing because they always sin, because all men sin. So they'll always be sinning and they'll always be doing wrong. So every Muslim is just about, at certain times in his life, convinced he's going to hell. And there's no salvation. There's no grace in Islam at all. There's no sacrifice for sins. It's You're either a good person and go to heaven, or you're a bad person and go to hell. That is why you'll get many of them willing to you know, commit suicide, And murder people. Strap bombs to them because they think, hey, I'd rather just do this now and go to heaven because Allah's going to forgive me um, of everything if I do this. Yeah, because this is the ultimate work that you can do. Kill yourself. And on top of that, I get all these virgins as well. You know, go to heaven and have sex. What a great heaven. Anyway, for some people, they would think that was a great heaven. But uh, for me, that's not my definition of heaven. So they deny the atonement of Jesus Christ and salvation by grace in him. They both assess a second-class status to women in having more than one partner. And in eternity, women are sexual slaves. Mormons call women in their eternal state celestial brides. Muslims call them perpetual servant virgins in Islam. And this is the the, dilemma. This is the dilemma. The Quran claims that Allah is the God who inspired the Torah as well as the Gospels. The Torah is the uh, old book of the Old Testament, the first five books. And the Gospels, Muslims are commanded, this is the words of, uh, of Muhammad, observe, observe the Torah and the Gospel, what is revealed to them from Allah. Elsewhere Muslims are told, O believers, believe in God and his messenger, Muhammad, and the book he has sent down on his messenger, the Quran, and the book which he has sent down before, the Bible. Who so disbelieves in God and his angels and his books and his messengers and the last day, he has surely gone astray into far error. God will gather the hypocrites and the unbelievers all in Gehenna, which is hell. So Muslims are forbidden by Allah to accept only part of God's revelation. That's in the Quran. That's what it says. So, but if Muslims accept the Quran, what the Quran teaches, they must accept what the Bible teaches, and the Bible rejects what the Quran teaches. Does that make sense? They both can't be right. No. Well, well, the Quran tells you you must accept the Bible. As, as coming down from 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 Allah because he inspired it. But then it says, the, but if you accept what the Bible says, it rejects what the Quran says because the Quran says that Jesus is not the Messiah, right? So there's, this is the dilemma. Uh, if a Muslim truly accepts the Bible as the Quran commands and thus logically rejects what the Quran teaches... He can no longer remain a Muslim. He should reasonably become a Christian if they follow that teaching by Muhammad. How then can a Muslim trust what the Quran teaches when it simultaneously undermines its own authority? The Muslim gets past this dilemma by claiming that wherever the Bible conflicts with the Quran, the Bible has been corrupted. That's how they get past it. However, what will you put your faith in? A book written by one man over a period of around 22 years, full of historical inconsistencies, Gnostic beliefs, and a cultish worldview of subjugation. Or our Bible written over a period of approximately 1,500 years by some 40 different men who were inspired by God and never contradicted one another, historically accurate with hundreds of fulfilled prophecies and the most sublime moral code yet conceived by man, With a flawless Messiah who laid down his life for our sins, what are you going to believe? A a, a book that was written for over a period of twenty-two years by one single illiterate man who mixed up Gnostic beliefs, got his history all stuffed up, and um, and even contradicted himself in it, Mm. and the book actually undermines its own authority. Are you going to believe a Bible? That is written over 1,500 years by 40 different godly inspired men that do not contradict each other. There's nowhere in the Bible does one prophet contradict another. They all actually work together. And then the Old Testament um, prophesied, the New Testament prophesied the coming of Jesus to the letter. Over 300 prophecies fulfilled just in Jesus alone. No other book has that capacity. So when we talk to Muslims, Muslims believe the original teachings of Jesus are corrupted, as was the teachings of the Apostle Paul. So you can't... If you ever want to speak to a Muslim, don't bring up the Apostle Paul. They rule him out straight away. They also believe the Apostle John was infected by Greek philosophy, so his gospel is largely suspect. So the Greeks stuffed him up. Um, (laughs) So staying with the scope of the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke... Uh, allows you to launch into the gospel message because that's pretty well all they'll listen to you. Um, So Muslims do not understand undeserved forgiveness through the blood of Christ. Be informed, the ignorance of what we Westerners have concerning the Islamic faith is appalling. Most of us don't know much about it. So we we don't know how to approach a Muslim. So the best thing we can do is we, we must proclaim Jesus Christ. Be open about what Jesus Christ has done in your life Uh, Explain your reasons for belief in him as your personal saviour. Just give it to him. As in, don't go too far outside of the scope of just Jesus and what he did uh, for you. Talk openly, honestly and personally about the love God has shown for you. Talk about how you're a sinner and you've been forgiven. And I can stand confidently before, before God on Judgment Day because of what Jesus has done. You talk about that and it just about baffles their mind. What? You feel confident for judgment? <laughs> you know, it, it blows them away. Share insights, answered prayers, and your own experiences of God's mercy and forgiveness. Encourage Muslims to read and reflect on the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. So encourage them, read, read the gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and... Oh, don't say John, just Matthew, Mark, and Luke. <laughs> All right, sorry, John. <laughs> Islam is a missionary faith uh, and therefore they aim to evangelise you so when you're talking to them they're trying to win you mm-hmm. and you're going to be trying to win them <laughs> therefore know what you believe solidly don't move into witness with a Muslim unless you are sure of what you believe um, and also you are sure of what they believe so be researched but the most important thing is be Sure, you're founded on the rock, and you know what you're on about. You know, Apology. apologetics, and and just knowing the grace of God. Know your doctrines well. Know your theology. Just know who, know all about your faith. Um, too many Christians. Um, Jesus says in uh, one of the prophets of old, uh, "My people are destroyed through lack of knowledge," uh, and it's pretty well goes hand in hand today with Christians today. Mm-hmm is we we don't know what we believe strong enough to be able to stand against an onslaught of, you know, criticism or, or rejection of what we believe.